The China Current continues its special coverage on the coronavirus outbreak. Go to our social media at the China Current and our website for interviews, videos, and podcasts. I'm James Chow. Thank you. Gender is always critical, and again in the COVID-19 pandemic. Early data shows high-risk groups include the aging population and those with pre-existing health issues such as long-term heart, liver, kidney, and lung disease. But we're also beginning to know that men are more susceptible to infection, though the reasons for this are not entirely clear. At the same time, with women making up the majority of the world's health workforce, what is the opportunity here to create a new movement for equality, so that the legacy of COVID-19 can produce some meaningful good for all of us? I speak now to Professor Sarah Hawkes, who leads the Centre for Gender and Global Health at the University College of London. You may have seen her in recent days on CNN, and you may also know her as the co-director of Global Health 5050, which Michelle Bachelet, the High Commissioner for Human Rights, describes as the world's leading authority. Let's quickly go to COVID. This perhaps is an opportunity for. Promoting equal opportunities—that we have so many women now who are absolutely critical, or in fact, are not only delivering but are leading the healthcare response in the epicenter of Wuhan—that、uh, perhaps this should be a wider call for equal opportunities across the board. What do you think? I think that history shows us that sometimes a crisis can serve as a focusing event for us all to take, kind of take take a step back and say, so why, you know, what what's been going wrong with our systems up till now? And so, if COVID is serving as a focusing event for really examining inherent gender inequalities that we see across. Every country in the world, I think that's absolutely fantastic. I, you know, I, I, I clearly think it's a tragedy that it would have to take an event like COVID、um, for people to really start taking gender equality to the core of what they 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 do.、Um, but. It, I, I think that that if this is the thing that serves as an opportunity to say, we clearly need equality of opportunity across the board going forward, then that's a very positive outcome of what is otherwise an extraordinarily tragic and 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 terrible.、Um, Event that's happening in every country, or almost every country in the world right now. Photography being so important, we've seen so many images of women on the front lines. Do you think that the images are enough? I mean, I think that's again, it's a really good point you raise, James. That that we know that just putting out data and talking about evidence is very rarely enough for people to to be gripped by a story. That people、um, very frequently respond to visual images as well, out of sympathy or empathy or just the sheer power. Of, of visual imagery, and so there, there is, and that was one of the reasons that certainly, as part of Global Health 5050, we wanted to explore the power and the representation of gender within the global health,、um, within the global health system. So again, you know, I think that it would be fantastic if those images were to serve as a as, as a real reminder. Of the, the of the power of women on the front line, I think that there is a 
it's somewhat of a danger of thinking about w- women on the front line of the health system alone without also recognizing the enormous role that we know from every epidemic and every illness the experience of every illness that the that the the majority the bulk of domestic care also falls to women and those are the pictures that you don't that 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 frequently don't make it into the media quite so much the women who are responsible for what's happening in the home you know if you tell a population to self isolate to to have social distancing to, to 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 take care of themselves at home rather than overloading health systems very frequently in the majority of cases in in most countries that set that care at home falls on the shoulders of of women in the domestic sphere as well and so though you know if we could capture those images as well i think we would start to to provoke much more widespread conversations not just about gender equality inside health systems for example but gender equality across society Sarah, we're seeing at least a number of key women not only embedded in the response, but leading entire national responses. We've got Chen Wei, the major general in China. She's doing that part. You've got Debbie Burks, who was repurposed from US Global AIDS coordinator to now leading the COVID response for the United States. What happens when you have more women at the head of a response? And is it dangerous when you have only men in that position instead? Well, you'd hope so, James. I, I very much hope so. I mean, the the invisibility of women in previous outbreaks, um, it's certainly in positions of decision-making power, has been written about, perhaps not as extensively as, as people like me would like it to have been written about. But it has been written about and remarked on and analysed that women were essentially absent from previous outbreak governance. And so it's fantastic to see um, women like Debbie Burks and Chun Wei actually being represented at the highest levels of decision-making. I mean, I, I have to say that, <clears throat> that the picture put out by the corona um, team from the highest levels of the US government didn't fill me with enormous hope that that messages of gender equality and representation were being totally taken on board when what you saw was a room full of men with not a single woman present. So I, I think that was possibly before they appointed Debbie Burks, but I think it speaks to certainly data that we have found um, in the work that we've done in GH5050, that when you get to the most senior levels of decision-making within the global health system, what you see is predominantly men. So 70% of the leadership of, of the global health system is, is male. And 80% of that leadership is from high-income countries. Why that matters is that we think that decisions that are being made um, that affect communities and countries and individuals and institutions are more effective and more representative when they are made 
by um, by by people who represent the entire spectrum of a community, mm-hmm. not just one small sliver of that community. When we go back to Debbie Burks, United States Global AIDS Coordinator, an extremely important position, do you think there were aspects of her AIDS background in her current role that people in the White House saw and said she should be used now for the COVID response? Well, I'd like to think, James, that when you're trained in in public health, um, which I, 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 you know, I have to admit to have only very briefly um, met Debbie Burks once, and so I don't know too much about what her, her 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 training background is, but I'm assuming that she comes from a general public health background, and that she has specialised, as we know, in um, controlling the HIV epidemic for the past number of years. When you come from a public health background, you're trained in infectious disease control as part of your 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 overall um, training. So the fact that she's been working in HIV would never preclude her from working um, across other infections and diseases as well. I think what the, the one of the inherent values that she will bring to the COVID response, having been completely embedded in the HIV response up till now, is the, is the absolute value and importance of community engagement, Mm -hmm. that you can't do anything for communities unless you do it with communities. And and, and that's the importance of having diverse representation in decision-making bodies, is that you have to have representation from the communities that you're trying to reach. And she will inherently understand that. Uh, Let's go now to another aspect. You talked about the focus of... uh, Equality can sometimes uh, be linked back to rather tragic events. And if we think not only of COVID in the year 2020, but there was also the Second World War, when we saw people of all social classes and all economic backgrounds and all genders coming together on the front lines, on the back lines of the war effort. If you think about the UK, for example, uh, the Queen, who was then a princess, a daughter, of the king was driving trucks. And this was completely foreign at the time to the highly defined role that women had. Do you think we can see the same transformation here with COVID-19, that it would lead the way into something which is permanently beautiful? I think there is always an opportunity for that, that James. I mean, I, I think, um, and, and I think it's incumbent upon all of us to make sure that the long-term gains that are potential opportunities from these kinds of tragic events are not squandered, that, that we're not sort of so wrapped up in... I mean, it's, it's, it's clearly very important to be wrapped up in the moment when, you, when what you're talking about is control of, of an epidemic. You need to, to focus on the here and now. But I do think it's incumbent upon all of us to have an eye on future opportunities as well. I mean, it could be argued that some of those gains, <clears throat> as far as gender equality in the Second World War was con- was concerned, were squandered to a degree post-war. So, you know, w- women's equality, women's participation in the workforce in non-gendered roles. My understanding as a non-historian is that some of that was lost 
once we uh, uh, and there was a a, um, a slight reversion back to 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 gendered working roles post second world war which wasn't there at the the time of of the tragedy of war i mean <clears throat> i you know i i i think that that what what covid op- offers us now as a global health system is an opportunity to think about what it, what taking a gender lens to the immediate problem would look like and then thinking about how a gendered response embedded through the entire health system would promote resilience and effectiveness moving forwards if resilience effectiveness and equality um, as far as health outcomes, as well as career opportunities moving forward might look like. So in the immediate here and now, you know, I, I would say that from a very practical first step, what we should be asking for and what we should be seeing, but we're not seeing is sex disaggregated data. We're not seeing a consistent production of sex disaggregated data in terms of who's getting infected and who's dying. And that's that's an immediate lost opportunity for us to really understand what the risks associated with the epidemic and the risk of death are. In the And in the longer term, I think there are other gendered responses that could be taken into account to increase equality, effectiveness and resilience in the system. Sarah Hawkes, let's go now to not only your gender background, but also your clinical one as well. Let's look at some of the early data. It's by no means definitive, but uh, they all seem to point to men being more susceptible to be infected with COVID-19 than women. For example, China CDC finds that 106 men were infected for every 100 women, WHO says that's about 51% in favour of men. What are some of the reasons why? Why would men potentially be more susceptible than women to this new virus? So, James, I think that 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 points to um, the interaction of sex and gender that we see across any health condition or, more rightly, any illness condition um, in the world. Um, So... By sex, I mean the biological characteristics that that each of us possess that defines whether or not we're a a man or a woman and is associated with differences in physiology, in, um, in how we look, in our reproductive functions, in our hormones, um, and in the way our immune systems function. So it's well known, for example, that there are major differences between male and female, or the, 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 the immune systems of men and women. So it could well be that some of that difference, if indeed there is a difference in terms of who gets infected um, is actually down to immunology, which would be a sex-linked difference between men and women. And I suppose that would be supported further by another set of statistics, also from China's CDC, saying fatality rates are 1.7% for women, 2.8% for men. That's a whole percentage point higher. 
Yeah, and, and so some of that could well be due to, to inherent sex characteristics and the inherent bio, biological differences between men and women. And we, we see that across m many, if not most, diseases, that sex plays some part in the, um, in the differences in prevalence and in mortality between men and women. And so COVID is, is, is simply representing what we see um, across most disease categories. But it could also be due, and it, it's unlikely to be due only to sex-related differences. It's undoubtedly the case, uh, certainly across all other disease categories, that gender plays a role there too. So in terms of when you're measuring infection, part of it is well, who who actually are you are you measuring the 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 who who are you actually testing? So who is it who's turning up to hospitals? And we know that there are gender-linked differences in, in terms of who turns up to hospitals to get tested. We also know that there are gender-linked differences. Certainly, if you examine heart disease, for example, we see clear gender-linked differences in terms of who um, gets tested once they're inside the hospital. And so we know that, that women's um, symptoms have to uh, generally have to be at a much more severe level before they get tested for heart disease compared to men's symptoms. And so, you know, you'd want to examine whether men and women are being tested at the same rate with the same severity of infection in order to be able to properly interpret the kinds of data points that, that, that you've just given me. So in terms of then who what, who's actually dying once they're, they're, they're infected and who develops severe disease, the other part of the, the data, as far as I understand it, is there seems to be an interaction with risk of death and underlying other um, chronic diseases that people are suffering from. And one of the, the explanations for that quite major difference between the, the case fatality rates in men and women in China could be due to the underlying smoking rates between men and women. So men, as, as I'm sure you realize, have a much, much higher smoking prevalence in China compared to women. My understanding is that um, un well under 5% of smokers, tobacco smokers in China are women. So in other words, smoking, which clearly leads to lung damage in the long term, um, and puts people at risk once they get a respiratory infection, they're much more likely to die, that that's an inherently gendered behavior. So the, the, the fact of smoking is not, is not a sex difference between men and women. That's a gender difference between men and women. So uh, in other words, for COVID, like with any other health problem it's an interaction between sex and gender that starts to explain those data but we can't we can't investigate and interrogate that if people aren't presenting sex disaggregated data in the public domain about a million people every year die of a tobacco related illness mm. in mainland china as you said it's not a secret you go out on the streets you see people lighting up there's been 
a great transformation in the major cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, to create public-free, uh, smoke-free cities in public places. Um, do you think that COVID nineteen will not only put a new emphasis on good health and well-being after this for the world's biggest population, but will also lend a huge push? To the tobacco control movement itself. Well, I, I really hope so, James. I, I mean, I, I, again, I think it, it it it's about seeing what you need to do in the short term, and then thinking about the long term patterns of behaviour and long term um, problems within health systems that have led us to 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 this point right now. Um, and so if this, you know, if it requires this for, for people to really start taking tobacco control in, in, in China um, as seriously as they need to, then that is a terrible indictment of the failure of, um, of tobacco control programs up till now. And we need to ask ourselves why, why it would have to take an epidemic like this before people take tobacco control seriously. But when you've got over half the male... Um, population in China who are smokers, which is what I understand the data show, that's a really serious public health problem moving forward. And that's something that's going to be a serious public health problem for decades and will require very, very strong action from the Chinese government. And here you've got a government that has shown that it actually... Right since the 1940s, the Chinese government has shown that it takes public health very, very seriously and can act in a very concerted and effective manner when it comes to public health control. The failure is around tobacco control and the reasons for that deserve deeper thought and explanation. And not only men, in a landmark survey a number of years ago, in China, they identified boys as young as the age of five who, when asked what were their aspirations as they grow up, they said that they wanted to smoke just like their fathers. And, and it's, you know, it's a terrible, terrible indictment on, on all of us that we haven't got to grips with a, an epidemic that kills millions of people every year. Um, the, the smoking epidemic in the same way that we haven't got to grips with the alcohol epidemic. So I think, you know, what, what COVID highlights again and again is that the world mobilizes over certain um, problems, as it should, but there are other health problems that it needs to take probably equally as seriously that cause long-term damage to people and populations that don't receive the attention that they should. Professor Sarah Hawkes, thank you very much for sharing all of these wonderful and important insights as we try and address what has been a very, very difficult and complex outbreak so far. It's a pleasure, James. Thank you for inviting me on.